And his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not born children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore be careful and drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean, for behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb. And he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. This is where the story begins, which is a pretty good beginning, really. Um, This is a great setup. I've got to tell you, though, right up front, the story only gets worse from here. In fact, it gets like way, way worse. It's a tragic story. It's a sad story. But it starts out really good. Israel has been taken once again into captivity by the violent, oppressive nation of the Philistines. And in the middle of this hard time, God makes a promise to a fairly just random couple. They're of one of the smallest tribes out of the 12 in Israel, the Danites, some guy named Manoah, who lives in a city called Zorah, whose wife, is struggling to have children, and he says, I'm gonna use you. I'm, go- I'm going to use you to have a son who's going to begin to save my people once again. But don't drink any wine or hard alcohol, don't touch any unclean thing, and when the little tyke comes out, don't cut his hair because he's going to be a Nazarite. What's a Nazarite, you say? If you go back to Numbers, Read chapter six, there's a very short explanation of what a Nazarite is. It's a, it's a very particular kind of vow that someone would take, a man or a woman would take, so as to fulfill a perhaps unique calling to, to set themselves apart for a very specific purpose that God has planned for them. Um, What Numbers explains is that the Nazarite vow involves three things. Number one, uh, they don't drink alcohol or anything from the vine, as it were. Number two, they're not to touch or be near anything dead. So like a dead body, a dead animal, kind of weird. And then thirdly, even weirder, they're never to cut their hair. Or at least for the the duration of the vow, the Nazarite isn't supposed to cut their hair. Now, there's a few instances, Samson being one of them, where the vow actually lasts a lifetime. Uh, Samuel is one of the other ones, and I forget the third one, John the Baptist. There's three Nazarites in Scripture who actually take a lifelong vow, who from birth began to fulfill this very unique calling. Um... And that's to make the point, can we go to the next slide, please? This man who's, we'll find out in just a moment, to be named Samson is gifted and called. And guys, I want to make this point because um, this is something that I, I used to hear all the time when I was a young Christian. And I didn't know anything, and I had just gotten saved. And, and there was this message that I would often hear, and it went something like this. God has a plan for your life. And I think to myself, yes, that's, that's fantastic. 
I'll sign up for that. And I did. To be honest with you, it was, it was sort of the, the angle that God used to really get my attention and get me going. That message, I fear, has been hijacked by, I don't know, the prosperity gospel movement, and it's just like it's become a bit cliche and cheesy, and God's got a plan for your life, but does he really? Tell me about how special I am. And so you don't hear it much these days. But I want to I emphasize the point that from his birth, while God was still forming him in his mother's womb, God said, I've got a plan for this guy's life. I've got a calling, and I'm going to give him I'm going to give him gifts to fulfill that calling. Even in the New Testament, if I can just skip forward a second, the scriptures tell us that we, we are reborn in Jesus, and God has prepared good works for us to walk into. Like if you make the decision to follow Jesus, the promise to you and I is, God's got an incredible plan for your life. He's got stuff that he has prepared for you to walk into, a calling, and he's given you everything you need to fulfill it. You are gifted and you are called. What a great start to any story. That should be enough to get you at least curious. What's going to happen? What does God have in store for me? And what what might my gifts be? Anyone ever taken one of those like spiritual uh, gifts tests or profiles? You're like, ooh, what am I gonna get? You're secretly hoping for like one of the cool ones. <clears throat> and then you get something like, oh yeah, you're gonna be a martyr. You're like, oh. <laughs> like Paul, hmm. Like Peter, no, no thanks. Um, okay, so. He's gifted and called, but like I said, it just gets terribly tragic from there. He goes on from this point in the story, from the beginning, the introduction, to, to do some amazing things. He, we don't know how his childhood went, but we do know that almost immediately he begins to actually walk in his calling and utilize this gift that God has given him, which turns out to be strength, like superhuman, crazy, awesome God strength. And he starts doing all these amazing things with this gift that God has given him. And there's, there's a line that pops up three times exactly that kind of serve as a highlighter uh, every time he's about to use this strength that God has given him. And the line is simply this. Then the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. And it happens three times. Um, I'm in chapter 14 now. The first time we see this, uh, he, he's on his way to meet a girl that he had seen. Apparently he had a crush on. He decides, like, this is the one. He goes home. He tells his parents, like, Dad, I need this girl. We got to make it happen. He says, really? Like, maybe, could you find a girl who's, like, of our tribe? Nope. Nope. She's the one. They're like, all right, son. So they go, they go to meet this girl, and they're walking through a vineyard. Apparently he's, he's not with his parents at the moment, but they're all on their way to meet this girl and they're walking through a vineyard and a lion shows up in the middle of this field about to attack Samson. And maybe you've heard the story. What does he do? He takes down the lion and rips it apart with his bare hands. 
it says the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him and he took out this lion. I want that spiritual gift. <laughs> Don't get me wrong, I like cats, but if a lion's coming at me, like I want that gift for sure. So a lion attacked him, he ripped it apart. Uh, this is verse eight of chapter 14. Then it says, after some days, this is a weird sort of uh, side thought, but it's important for later on in the story. Verse eight, after some days, he goes back to the dead lion, probably like several days, and discovers a beehive in the carcass of the dead lion. So he scrapes out some of the honey and shares it with his parents, but doesn't tell them where he got it. That's going to be important for later. Um, then he, he has this idea. He, he's preparing for the wedding. Okay, that's happening. The village of the girl who he's about to marry, um, apparently this, is like, this would be ancient, proper ceremony. They bring a whole sort of um, squad of guys, 30 men from the village to be his marriage companions. And he has this idea, he's going to tell them a riddle, sort of as they're preparing for this wedding ceremony, and he says to him, if you can solve my riddle, then I will give you 30 fine linen wedding garments, essentially is what he's talking about. In other words, hey, I got a riddle for you. And you could almost like detect the smugness. I got a riddle for you. And if you can solve it, I'll pay for all your tuxes. Like not just rent them for you, I will pay for them, like bought and paid for and give them to you. But if you can't solve my riddle by the end of the week, then you guys all owe me 30 linen wedding garments. And they're like, all right, fine. So that happens. Um, a few days go by, the 30 quote unquote companions, they pull this girl aside that he's supposed to marry and they threaten her. They say, we want you enticed to entice Samson to tell you the answer to the riddle so that you can tell us otherwise, we'll burn down your dad's house. Happy honeymoon. That's, that's massive. Could you imagine if you're like 30 groomsmen all conspire against you because they don't want to pay for their own tuxes and so this is what they do? Um, so anyways, it ends up working. It says that she pressed him hard for seven days and finally he gives in. He tells her to answer the riddle and she tells them and Samson gets really, really angry. Verse 19, it says, Samson went down to Ashkelon. Philistine at the time had like the equivalent of five capital cities. One of them was Ashkelon. So Samson says, right, you're going to do that? I'm going to do this. Instead of me giving you 30 of my own linen garments as if I had them, I'm going to go to one of your capital cities. It says he strikes down 30 guys who were probably getting ready for some wedding in Ashkelon, takes their garments and says, there you go, there's your garments. It's beginning to unravel. It says that he did this, struck down the 30 men, took their garments, gave it his quote-unquote companions, and then went home in hot anger to his father's house. He's like, forget all y'all, I'm going home. He's, he's, he's ticked off, and he moves back in with his parents. Classic. <laughs> Chapter 15. 
chapter 15. It says, after some more days went by, he finally went back to make up with the girl. Turns out his father-in-law uh, ended up giving his wife, technically, away to, he annulled the marriage, ended up giving the girl away to marry the best man from his wedding ceremony. Yeah, totally. <laughs> so he did that. Samson, he says, right. Now this, what he does next is what anyone would do. He catches 300 foxes, <laughs> ties their tails together, attaches a torch in the middle, and then sets them loose in the grain field of the Philistines. And apparently we're told specifically that it's like harvest time. 300 foxes, ties their tails together, sticks a torch in the middle, sets them loose in the grain field, and, and they just torch the place. Uh, then, in response, the Philistines uh, find out who did it, and they said, right, uh, we had, before we had threatened to burn your wife's father's house down, instead we're just going to burn them alive. Okay. It gets really, really dark. So the Philistines say, right, you burn our grain, we're going to burn your wife and your father-in-law alive. So there you go. Chapter 15, verse 7. I told you it gets tragic. Samson says, if this is what you do, I swear I will be avenged on you. And after that, I will quit. Now, when someone says that, one more time, one more go, then I'll quit. That's addict talk. That's you know you have a problem. You know things are starting to get out of control when you say that. Just one more time and, and, and that'll be it. It's just, I can quit any time. I don't have a problem. Like, I just got to do this one last thing and then I'll quit. This is how you know Samson is getting very close to actually hitting rock bottom. Verse 8, and it says, and he struck them hip and thigh with a great blow. That's a, it's an ancient idiom that simply means, and he just, he, expletive, expletive, like, like he, he took them down real good. He absolutely wiped them out. Then Samson, he left and he went down and he hid out in a cave in some area called Edom. Let me just pause for a minute, because, guys, the story is so nuanced. There's all of these little, like, one-liners and, and, and things that I think if we can zoom in on, can really get the essence of the story and figure out what on earth this has to do with us. One more time, and I'll quit. Have you ever said something like that? Have you ever like had that situation in your life where you know, maybe you don't like consciously or out loud say it, but you think to yourself, okay, this is the last time I promise. This is the last time. Or maybe that was the last time 
never again. And you somehow convince yourself in your mind that that thing that is beginning to unravel a little bit, is beginning to reap havoc in your life, beginning to destroy, is resulting in chaos and violence and destroyed relationships. That thing that you keep doing, you swear to yourself, that was the last time. I for sure am not going to do that again. Are you guys tracking with me? Okay. I'm, I'm wanting to emphasize this because that just speaks so, so absolutely loud to me. I, I've been there. I've done that. And in some cases, have literally said those words out loud to myself. This is it. I will quit. Never again. One more time. Back in the day, for sure, before, before I had actually even cared to try to stop sinning, uh, I, this, was, this was like a normal occurrence for me. I remember, uh, so I've shared this openly quite a few times, but it, it was just a huge thing for me. I used to smoke a lot of marijuana. Started out slow, kind of built up, um, liked it, enjoyed it, was very functional in doing it um, in terms of like adult stuff. But uh, I remember getting to a point in my life where I just thought, you know what, like, no, I, I don't, no. No, I don't, want to, I don't want to do this for the rest of my life. I don't want to be that guy. I don't want to be that dad. And occasionally I'd, I'd get high with like a, a buddy's like mom or dad and it would really like freak me out because I'd think like, am I going to become like that parent? And excuse me if you're feeling judged right now, but that's, that's how I was feeling, all right? That's how I was feeling. I don't want to be that guy. And so I would, I would kind of have a moment. I'd be like, you know what? Like, this is it. Tonight will be the last night. We'll have a big shebang. It'll be fun, but that's it. I'm gonna just. I'm. I'm done. I'm. I'm gonna turn. Turn a new leaf. And, and so I would determine. I would determine to do that. And how long would it last? How long does it ever last? Not forever. A couple weeks for me. And then I think, why am I doing this? Why am I torturing myself? And, and I would relapse. And, and guys, I could give you half a dozen different examples of how I would do that. That cycle, that sort of thinking over and whether it was like my party, my drinking, my pot, uh, porn, sex, relationships, um, even just like more subtle, like self-centered kinds of tendencies. Like I want to change. I want to be a different kind of person. I want to do this, you know, and you sort of like, you know, make a a vow to yourself like I'm going to change this time. But once you get to that place, I'm afraid that it's, you've, already, you've already crossed the line. You're already beginning to, to make promises to yourself that you might very well may not be able to keep because you don't start making those kind of promises to yourself unless you've actually perhaps have a little bit of a problem. And this is what's happening. Um, I told you there was three instances. Uh, the, the third instances, or instance of then the Spirit of the Lord came upon him uh, happens shortly after this moment. So he's hiding out in the cave, um, and, and he's mowed down these guys. It says that 3,000 of his own kinsmen end up going to find him in this cave. And they say, Samson, Look, dude, we've got to 
we've got to hand you over to the Philistines. This is getting out of control. Okay, we're, we're living under the violent oppression of these people. You are making life more difficult for us. Please, let, just surrender yourself. Let us hand you over. And Samson says, right, fine. As long as you promise not to kill me yourselves, as long as you promise not to trick me, I'll surrender myself. You hand me over to the Philistines. So he does it. It says that the, the 3,000 men from Judah, his kinsmen, take him out of the cave, tie him up with two brand new ropes, not like old brittle stuff, two brand new ropes, and they hand him over. And it says the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and he broke the ropes, picked up the jawbone of an old dead donkey that happened to be lying there. This is so bizarre. Picks up the jawbone of an old dead donkey and just starts to go insane on these guys. He mows down a thousand people. Like this is, this is, this is insane rage. I would say uh, Samson's addiction, it's rage. Totally rage. He is a rageaholic. He cannot get enough rageahol. That's his thing. And so he mows down a thousand men with the jawbone of a dead donkey. It was absolutely not his last time. He relapses like nothing else. And he murders these thousand people. I mean, could you imagine? It says afterwards, he, um, this was chapter, towards the end of chapter 15. It says, as soon as he had finished, he threw away the jawbone out of his hand. Get the picture. I mean, everyone's dead. It's, it's like this insane, violent massacre. And he's standing there on this hill, probably just panting, exhausted, blood everywhere. And he looks at his, his hand. He looks at his, by that time, he must just be like, just, just clenched onto the thing. And he throws it. He realizes he's been holding on to this, the, the bone of this dead animal. And that's important. He throws it. Like, what have I become? Who am I? Chapter 15 ends, not there, but there's one little, little kind of closing bit at the very end of chapter 15. It says he throws away the bone, the jawbone of the donkey, and in verse 18 it says, and he was very thirsty. Just fought a thousand dudes with a jawbone of a donkey like he's gonna die of thirst. And so he cries out to God, God, after all this, are you just gonna leave me to die of thirst? And you know what God does? This is so insane. You know what God does? He gives him water. If I was God, I'd be like, dude, no, sorry, you did this to yourself. Like, you're gonna die. Okay, you're gonna die with these thousand guys you just killed. You can just fall on your donkey bone, all right? It sounded weird. He gives him water. Okay, now this is, again, this, guys, this is such a random story. But there's, it says something so profound about the heart of God. The story's not over, so just, just hang on. But after all of this, 
after his vow, I'm never gonna do it again. That's it, I'm done with violence. I'm gonna go live in a cave. I'm gonna be a hermit. And by the way, this is what addicts do. They withdraw when you feel like this is out of control. I can't handle this anymore. You think if I, if I can just alter my surroundings and withdraw, that will solve my problem. Not necessarily a bad idea, because sometimes like, you've just gotta get some new friends, right? But the problem is still there. So he hides out in a cave thinking, that's it. I'm, I'm never going to do it again. He relapses, kills a thousand guys, realizes what he's done, and then cries out to God. And God gives him water. Guys, this is like, this is, this is mercy. This is mercy is what it is. It is unadulterated, unfathomable, utterly undeserved mercy. God would have been well justified to just be like, dude, on your own. On your own. But he doesn't. He gives him another chance. And then chapter 15 simply ends by saying, and he judged Israel in the days of the Philistines 20 years. The story kind of concludes there. Here's what's happening. Samson's born with a calling and a giftedness. God's given him strength for a reason. Remember, from birth, God said, this, he's gonna be special, he's gonna be set apart, he's gonna be a Nazarite, I'm gonna, give him a, I'm gonna give him strength so that he can begin to save my people Israel. It's time. What does he do? He takes his great strength and he abuses it such that it becomes his great weakness. How does he do this? How does he do this? We can go to the next slide, please. This is, what he, this is what he's doing. How is this happening? Three points. Number one, his life had become all about him. So he took the strength, started out, he killed a lion. Okay, he was probably defending his parents. Cool. That's pretty sweet. But then he goes back to the lion. Why? I don't know maybe just to kind of look at it because like we're just weird like that. And he finds some bees who have made a nest and he scoops honey out. Now, he didn't tell his parents. Why? Because he's a Nazarite and he knows he's not supposed to touch dead things. What happens next? It's all about revenge after that point of the story. Rage and revenge. You get me? Oh, you don't even know. Hammer comes down down when you mess with Samson. Like, you, you're, gonna, you're gonna burn my wife? If you're gonna, you get the point, right? It's just rage and revenge, rage and revenge. He takes the strength that God has given him and makes it all about Samson. It's all about him, it's all about his thing, it's all about his problem, it's all about his revenge. Number two, he had convinced himself that he had everything under control. I think I've, I've, I've kind of already made this point. Convinced himself, I got this. I totally got this. It reminds me of my very first pastor. He had an affair. Broke my heart, like you would never believe. Broke a lot of people's hearts. And I finally met him face to face. We happened to get our hair cut the same place. It was like really, really uncomfortable. I walk in, he's sitting there getting his hair cut. I wanted to just walk out, 
I didn't. I sat down, I waited. Afterwards, we had a little face-to-face, and all I could ask him is, why? Like, why? Or how did it happen? That's what I, I was really trying to ask him. Like, how did, it, how did it get to this? You know what he said to me? I'll never forget the last bit of wise pastoral advice I ever received from, from that pastor, who's not a pastor anymore. He said, Simon, I had a problem and I thought I had it under control. I, I thought I had it. Some stuff had happened and I thought, okay, that's never ever gonna happen again. I, I'll, just, I'll just lock this down. And he said, I lied to myself. I had, I had nothing under control. That's exactly what Samson did. And number three, he didn't tell anyone what was going on. He decided to go hide out in a cave. I mean, he could have told his parents. At the very beginning, he killed the lion, great. And then he went back, not so great, playing with fire. And he sees something sweet in the very place he should not be going near. Now, why that's a part of the Nazarite vow, I, that's just a whole other thing. But he gets the honey. Not only does he take some, but, but he actually shares some of it with his parents. It makes you wonder, like, what kind of weird justification is going on there? Like, I know I shouldn't be doing it, but at least I'm, like, sharing it, you know? It's, it's not like I'm hoarding it to myself. You know, a little bit of Robin Hood complex there. He could have told his parents. He's like, you know what? I feel really, really bad. You know, this happened to me one time. When I first became a Christian, I used to steal a lot. I had a lot of problems, guys, whole lot of problems. Somehow, I, I got this, this, I started becoming, I was a bit of a klepto, really. And at one point, I stole a sound system. I managed to get into the student union at my university, and I stole a full-blown sound system. I got saved, and the worship band at my church had a, just a really terrible sound system. They basically like a guitar amp with a couple of microphones plugged into it. And I had this idea one day, I'm like, oh my goodness, like I can bless the church with this sound system. And I felt so like, yes, like I'm going to save the day. This is going to be great. Everyone will know how great I am. And so I told, told the worship pastor, like, hey, I've got a sound system. I can donate it to the church. And he's like, oh, that'd be wonderful. God bless you. And then like, I'm like, yeah, I'll go home. I'll bring it next week. At some point that week, I realized like, oh, I, no, that's so wrong. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm a new Christian, but I, I don't think God would be down with that. I actually ended up unstealing it. Like, I managed to get back in the building. I felt so deeply convicted. I got back in the building, and I literally put it all back and, like, and like got away with it. So, anyways, it wasn't, like, perfect repentance, but, like, I was trying I could have just told someone. I could have just confessed. I could have just been honest, like, hey, I was someplace where I shouldn't have been doing something that I shouldn't have been doing. Can you help me? I don't want to try to justify this. I don't want to try to fool myself into thinking, like, I got this. I'll never do it again. Hmm. 
Hmm. You might be wondering about Delilah, um, Samson and Delilah. Chapter 16 is basically the whole story all over again. Um, just, for, just for the sake. Might as well finish it off. Chapter 16, it begins by saying, Samson went to Gaza, part of the Philistine uh, territory, and there he saw a prostitute. It's, things are not getting better for Sam. Anytime in the Bible where it starts out and your hero got with a prostitute, like, not going well. Not going well. And he went into her. Um, and then it says that the Gazites, that is the Philistines living in Gaza, saw what he was up to. They were going to conspire to kill him. You know what he does? Again, this is the randomness of Samson. We're told that at midnight... He wakes up. The city, of course, would have been secure. All, all locked down, gates locked. He makes a beeline for the gate, picks the whole thing up, like, out of its hinges, puts it on his shoulder, and, like, takes up to the top of a hill and dumps it off. And he's like, peace out. <laughs> As if that's, like, a super important part of the story. Like, we need to know that. In other words... Samson's still, he's still, he's still at large, okay? He's still sleeping around, he's still screwing up, and he's still got, he's, he's still got, he still has, his God-given strength. Now, I don't, I don't know if you've wondered to yourself yet, but how is it this guy is continuing to, like, operate with this gift that God has given him? How does that work? I'm not sure, but I will say this. Each one of us is born with a unique gift and calling. You have strengths that God has hardwired into you. God gives those things to you as a gift. There it is, you're super smart. It's yours to do with what you will. You're super talented. You're gorgeous, you're fit, you're creative. You're born into this family with opportunities. Like he gives you a gift and he says, right. Now you know what it's for, but it's up to you to decide. You can make it all about yourself. See how that goes. Or you can use the gift for the reason you've been given it in the first place. Samson obviously um, did not choose the latter. But he has the gift. That's the point. God had given him a gift and he didn't revoke it. He said, now you choose. So he does that. Finally, we meet Delilah. And this, this pretty much brings us to the conclusion of our story. Chapter 16. In verse 4, it says, After this, he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. She said to him, Tell me how you might be bound. It's, it's just like the first woman that he almost married. She pressed and pressed and pressed. Tell me the answer to the riddle. And he said, look, I've not even told my parents. And you want me to tell you? And she pressed and she pressed and he finally broke down. Same thing all over. He meets Talilah four times. You don't really love me. 
You won't even tell me how you might be bound. You read this and you're like, Samson, don't tell her. Don't be an idiot. And she presses hard. Literally, it's the same words, it's the same line. She presses hard. She nags, she, she's relentless. Then it says in chapter 16, verse 16, and when she had pressed him hard, his soul was vexed to death, and he told her all his heart. You know, there's a real metaphor at work here that should be pretty obvious. Life and temptation will systematically press you to give up, to let down your guard, to relent and finally say, fine, here's everything. Here's my deepest, darkest secrets, my most passionate desire. Here is my heart. You win. Go ahead, bound me and do your worst. That, that's the nature of life. At least if you're living like Samson. The tempter will wear you down until you finally give away your heart. That's what Jesus called trading in your soul. That's what he was talking about when he said, will you give up everything in exchange for your very soul? Oh yeah, we do it all the time in various ways of all sorts and kinds. He finally gives into Delilah. But here's where the story becomes the most tragic of all. Chapter 16, verse 20. He finally gives in and he, he tells her his secret. He lies to her three times and finally says, fine. You want to know how to ban me? Cut my hair. I'm a Nazarite. In fact, it's, it's, I think it's probably safe to conclude that that was the last part of his vow that he had yet to break. Okay, you know he'd been to some parties. You already know he's touched two dead things, the lion and the jawbone of the donkey, which is why he threw the thing away. And now he said, fine, you want to know my secret? Cut my hair. That's how my vow will finally be broken, and then you can bound me. And that's exactly what happens. But in verse 20, it says, he wakes up, and he says to himself, Samson says to himself, I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. Oh my goodness. That scares me to death. Now, some of you might be thinking like, well, hang on a second. What are you, what are you implying? that if I sin too hard, too long, too much, that God will leave me? Hmm. Hmm. I'll, I'll say this. I don't want to say any more than what the scriptures are saying. But I will say this, that if we presume upon the grace of God, then yes, we may find ourselves in a place we, would, we, we wouldn't want to ever imagine. Because God's grace is not cheap. 
We can't just simply lie to ourselves and say, oh, well, you know, I got, get out, get out of hell free card here. I got, I got Jesus. So, you know, yeah, okay, fine. I've been living, living my whole life in rebellion. I've been sinning. I've been lying to myself. I've been keeping it a secret. But, you know, grace. No, that's called presuming upon the grace of God. It's, it's what Dietrich Bonhoeffer describes as cheap grace, which is not grace. It's faux grace. It's us lying to ourselves and using the concept of grace to justify our own rebellion. And so, yes, we might wake up one day and say, but Jesus, didn't we do this? Didn't we do that? Wasn't I religious? Didn't I do all these things in your name? And he might actually look us in the eyes and said, who are you again? I never knew you. Because you spent your whole life lying to yourself, sinning and try to justify it using a theological concept instead of actually coming to me and allowing me to change your heart. Yeah, this is super heavy, super heavy. The end of the story is they take Samson captive, he's lost his strength, they gouge his eyes out, and they throw him in a prison where he starts to grind grain on the millstone. Tragic irony. It says one day the Philistines are having a big feast, big sacrifice to their god Dagon. And they said, bring out Samson. Let's have some fun. So they bring him out. There's 3,000 people present. And they put him between the two pillars that are holding up the way to the house. And Samson prays one last time. He says, Lord, give me strength. And he ends up pulling down these pillars. And in essence, the, the people of God are, the enemy is vanquished. Samson actually fulfills his calling, which was to free God's people from their oppressors. This is what he was called to do. And he does it. And it costs him his life. Enter Jesus. This is a picture of the Messiah is to come. We're given gifts not so that we can make life all about ourselves. Not so that we can use what God has given us for our own purposes, for our own desires, but for a very specific reason, for calling that we might serve others, that we might be his instruments of mercy in a world that desperately needs to feel the mercy and the love of God. In the end, God's will was done. This is, this is the, the, the irony of it all. Yeah, his calling was fulfilled, but he wasted 20 years of his life. How do we not do that? Where's the good news in all of this? Can I invite the worship team to come back up, please? See, if we just ended right here, guys, I would say, if we just ended the story right here, I would say, guys, you have just heard a gospel-less message. Don't ever, ever come back to this church. 
But the story so does not end there. What it really is, it's, it's, the story of, it's the story of Israel. It's the story of a nation that constantly keeps relapsing into rebellion. God says, I've given you a calling. I've given you gifts. I've made you a unique, special people. I've blessed you so that you might be a blessing. And this nation keeps doing the same thing over and over and over until finally God says, right, have it your way. And they're exiled. You could say, God says, fine, right, if you don't want me, then fine, on your way. But he doesn't give up. Every time God's people cry out to them, he says, mm, you're so naughty, but I love you so much, like a, like a father and his child. You deserve to be just, mm. you deserve everything you're getting, but I love you too much to simply just forget about you. And so he sends his son. So the father becomes flesh. God the creator, the king of the universe, enters into our mess, our brokenness, our denial, our self-centeredness, and he becomes who we're meant to be. He lives the life that we were created for. And he dies for our sins. He suffers because of all of our mess and you know what that means for us can we go to the next slide please that means our greatest weaknesses become conduits of the greatest strength of all this is what Paul writes in his letter to, to the Corinthians and we'll close here my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I'm content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. We don't have to hide we don't have to justify. We don't have to try to convince ourselves that this is the last time and it'll all be different moving on. No. We can come to our king and say, I am, I'm hurt. I'm messed up. I don't want to live in this cycle anymore. I don't want to hide. I don't want to withdraw. I don't want to live for myself anymore. Won't you take my weakness and do something with it? Won't you give me a new heart?